talk at some of these conventions or conferences, somebody always comes up to me and says, you know, you talk funny. <laughs> and I always tell them I'm a born and bred Texan with a true Texas twang. I want to tell you about my medallions this morning before before I start uh, my talk. This is my 25-year medallion that my sponsor, Willie B., gave me last two years ago when I was sober 25 years. Now, Willie B. has been my sponsor the last nine years because both of my original sponsors died. And even though I had been sober 18 years, I still knew that I needed a backup sponsor. And Willie is one of the reasons that I'm here tonight, by the way. Now, this medallion, this, I, I'd had my beads a couple of months and worn them several times, and this medallion has a little story attached to it. Did any of you ever see the movie, The Best Little Whole House in Texas? <laughs> well, I'll tell you, like I said, I'd had the bees a couple of months and worn them, and one day I looked down, and I saw that uh, a chicken and a rooster engraved on my medallion. And I was thought, well, now, what in the world? And when this little prim, gray-haired woman read what was on this medallion, now, really, I ain't prim, I just look prim. <laughs> I nearly fainted because on one, and incidentally, this famous courthouse uh, in Texas was called the Chicken Ranch at LaGrange, Texas. And it was known all over the United States. Been in business 150 years. And an old mean TV personality in Houston shut it down with bad publicity and there was a lot of moaning and groaning about the Chicken Ranch being <laughs> shut down. But when I read what was on my medallion, it said, on one side, it says the Chicken Ranch, LaGrange, Texas. And on the other side, it says, good for all night. <laughs> My name is Mary, and I am an alcoholic. And I have been sober since April the 21st of 1964 one day at a time. And this miracle of sobriety, this amazing grace, is because of a divine and loving providence, my two beloved sponsors, Gloria P. and Lee H., and because of people exactly like you. I grew up in the West Texas town of Breckenridge, and it's deep in the heart of Texas. And I grew up with tumbleweeds, uh, Sandstorms and rattlesnakes. And lots of times before I went to school, my mother used to have to say, well, let me sweep off the porch before there might be a rattlesnake out there. And they still have rattlesnake hunts where I grew up. And uh, my mother and father were the social leaders of the church group in this town, and they entertained a lot. But being good Baptists, they didn't drink alcohol, and they didn't serve alcohol. But they weren't for it, and they weren't against it. And my little friend's parents at the country club said, drank alcohol and served alcohol, and it was all right. And I grew up in my formative years thinking alcohol was a beverage, and the good Lord knows it ain't no soda pop. <laughs> it's a mood-altering chemical formula, and it was so toxic to me, it almost cost me my life. Now, I am married, and lately I have been thinking about the marrying kind of people in AA. You all know some of them. And uh, I know that there's a man in, in Houston, 11 years ago, had already been married 11 times. And I sponsor a woman that had been married eight times. And my friend Jack S. of Louisville, Kentucky, tells about his friend that said 
He had jars of peanut butter that lasted longer than some of his marriages. <laughs> well, I want to tell you that I didn't get to have all this fun. Because since the beginning of time, I have been married to the same husband one day at a time. <laughs> I'm the mother of two grown sons, and I thank God every day they're grown and raised. And you taught me in this program I could not live my son's lives. And because I was teachable, I let go of these boys, and they lived their lives and tended their business, and I live my life and tend to my business, and we have a pretty good relationship. Now, I am a grandmother, but I ain't the babysitting kind of grandmother. <laughs> the idea of baking cookies and entertaining grandchildren is just not my idea of how I want to spend my one day at a time. <laughs> And I belong to an old and honorable profession. I am a housewife. Now, I am not a member of the oldest profession. <laughs> and it is a damn good thing. Because considering how ugly I looked in my mean personality, I would have starved to death. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I took my first drink when I was a senior in high school, and it ended in complete disaster. I got drunk, I got sick, I threw up on everybody just like a flamethrower. And, and this was such a bad trip for me that I didn't drink anything for the next eight or ten years. And in, and in that time, I had married, and I was the mother of these two small sons, and we were buying a new used home and a new used car all on one salary. And there wasn't enough money left out of the budget for me to have help with my housework. And I had an awful lot of housework to do, and I hated housework. And you know, Irma Bombeck says housework, if it's done right, can kill you. <laughs> but I felt about housework like this little hippie bride. She told her best friend, she said, oh, housework is such a drag. She said, you wash the dishes and make up the beds, and three weeks later you have to do it all over again. <laughs> and one afternoon I was trying to wade through a big ironing, and back in those days you had to iron everything but the underwear and the socks. And a friend came by and suggested a cold beer, and it was a hot Houston afternoon, and I remember thinking, well, of course, it's just a beverage. And when I drank those two beers that afternoon, something wonderful happened to me. First of all, I was happy and gay and felt good, and it gave me energy. And I, within oh, just three or four hours' time, I had that ironing all done, I had dinner on the table, and I felt like a million dollars, and I thought, boy, I have found the answer. And had I found an answer, oh, let me tell you. And you know what happened? That was the beginning of my alcoholism. And I started drinking two to four beers a day to get through my housework, four to six beers a day to get through my housework, six to eight beers a day. I had the cleanest house in Houston. 
I even put newspapers under the cuckoo clock. <laughs> when, I got, when I got up to eight, ten, eight, eight, 10 to 12 beers a day, that's when I decided that I would switch to bourbon. And within two years after drinking those two beers that afternoon, I was in serious trouble with my alcoholism, only I didn't know that's what it was. And this is when I started experiencing a personality change. Did any of you ever have a personality change? Well, my personality change became so dangerous and so bizarre that my family had to take the firing pins out of all the guns in the house. Because when they would argue with me, or they would accuse me, or they would criticize me. Now, I don't take criticism well 27 years sober. I sure as hell didn't take it well back in there. I would grab the guns, and I would try to shoot them. Now, I have a nickname all over Houston. I'm called Shotgun. And I ain't called Shotgun for nothing. (laughs) And uh, in the beginning, incidentally, I am... Described perfectly in the big book, in my big book, I think it's the 55 edition on page 21, where it says the alcoholic does absurd, incredible, and tragic things while drinking. He is a regular Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. He is seldom mildly intoxicated. He is always more or less insanely drunk. And this describes me to a T. Now, in the beginning, when they, I was going into one, they called them my spells. <laughs> when I was fixing to shoot them, they said, Mother's in one of her spells. <laughs> they would hide the guns from me, but I could find them. And then they got to where they would hide all the ammunition from me, out in the pump house on a great big lot. And they had me for for a while. But one morning I had gotten beat, I woke up needing a drink so bad and wasn't a drink in the house, but I managed to get my husband off to work and these two sons off to school. I think one of them was in kindergarten. And I was sitting in my living room in an antique rocking chair watching the clock because when it got straight up nine o'clock, I was going to the liquor store, which took 15 minutes. Now, many a morning I had gone to the liquor store gotten there before it opened, and I would be standing out there with those winos and those weirdos, and I felt humiliated. Now, I know tonight I was exactly like those winos. It was just a matter of degree, and my behavior sure was weird. But I was going to wait till 9 o'clock so I could go in that liquor store like a lady and buy my two or three half pints of old crow. And while I was watching the clock, I was remembering how mean they had been to me the night before. They all had tons of vipers, and then they wouldn't let me shoot them. (laughs) I thought, I know just what I'll do. A very sick thought came to mind. I thought, I'll stop back by the hardware store and I'll buy my own ammunition. And I didn't buy ordinary shells, I bought hollow points. <laughs> and this, this ammunition is not, these shells are not designed to wound or to wing, they are designed to devastate. And this nice little loving wife and mother came home to the lip store and the hardware store with several boxes of devastating ammunition. 
And I started hiding these shelves all over the house, upstairs, <laughs> upstairs and downstairs and under the carpet and in the drapes and every place I could find to hide about 15 or 20 shelves. That's what I did. You know, I've often wondered what those people thought that bought that house from me. <laughs> And after I had, I felt real smug after I had outsmarted an alcoholic husband and two small sons. So nothing uneventful happened for several months. I didn't always get mean and out of control. Sometimes I got drunk and loved everybody. Sometimes I got drunk and was industrious. Sometimes I got drunk and I just peacefully passed out. But I never knew what was going to happen to me when I drank. But one afternoon, my husband and these two sons were out in the backyard, and they were pitching horseshoes, and they were having such a good time. And I was in the house drinking and getting in one of my mean moods. And uh, my husband is a beer alcoholic, and the icebox was full of beer. And what I was doing, I was drinking his beer, and then I'd go in my dresser drawer, and I'd take two or three slugs of Old Crow, and I'd come back and chase it with his beer. I want you to know that I drank so much old crow before I got to AA 27 years ago, that is exactly what I look like. <laughs> I'm just glad I didn't drink old granddad. <laughs> came in to get a beer and he looked at me and he says, Mary, how in the hell can you be so drunk on two beers? <laughs> I looked up at him so innocent and I said, I don't know. It must be my metabolism. <laughs> I wasn't even sure what that word meant, but he sure didn't know what it meant. So he took a beer and went outside to pick some more horseshoes. And, and about that time, that old mean mood got all over me. And I thought, you know, they're having too much fun out there. I didn't want anybody to have a good time if I was unhappy. And I, that's when I remembered my little catch of shells. So I got my twenty-two automatic rifle, which I had won in a poker game once when I was drunk. And I loaded this this twenty-two rifle with hollow-point shells. Now, I wasn't going to shoot them. But I went out on the back porch, and I just fired him through the ground two or three times. Beep, beep. And I want you to know you never saw a covey of quail scattered the way I You know, one went east, and one went west, and one went over the cuckoo's nest. <laughs> but one, one ran behind the boat shed, and one ran behind a great big oak tree. It was so big you could park a tank hunt behind it. And one had ran beside the side of the house, and they were catcalling back and forth. What in the world had happened? I had double-crossed them again, and they came to two conclusions. The first conclusion, that gun was loaded. And the second conclusion was, so was I. So it was after this that they started taking the firing pins out of all the guns in the house. You know, one of the most insidious phases of this disease of alcoholism, in many cases, mine especially, that we turn against those that we love and need the most. It is so tragic, because it was after this when I felt threatened 
I would revert to the butcher knives and the meat cleaves and the ice picks. Many a morning I have gotten up to fix breakfast for my family, and I'd open that drawer and there wouldn't be a knife, a beer opener, or anything in that drawer with a point or an edge on it. And I would make that long, slow walk down to my son's bedroom, never knowing what I was going to find. But when I checked them out and they had all their ears and their noses, and I was so relieved and full of gratitude. But when I had found these butcher knives and that great big meat cleaver up under their pillow, I would know I had just been dreadful the night before. And I would walk back to the kitchen. I'd reach under there and get a knife out so I could finish breakfast. And I would walk back to my kitchen with the heaviest heart and the sickest soul of any woman you've ever known. And I put the knives in the sink to run some water over them. And I had a window over my kitchen sink, and it faced out toward the east. And always about this time, the sun was rising. And I looked out through the, and I thought, if there is a God, he is in the sunshine, in the sunrise. And I would look out my window and I would say, my God, my God, I have done it again. What is the matter with me? I didn't know I had a disease called alcoholism that was causing this insane behavior. It was long about this time that the suicide attempts came into play. I tried to commit suicide so many times that it just got to be old hat around our house. One evening, my husband came in from work, and he looked at the gun rack, and he says, Mary, where's my shotgun? And I said, it's upstairs. And he said, well, what is it doing upstairs? And I said, well, I was planning to kill myself. And he undid his tie and brushed past me, and he said, what, again? And I jumped out of a car once going 80 miles an hour. And where I jumped out in this ditch, there were great big old pieces of concrete, jagged, broken railroad ties, everything under the sun in that ditch that could have killed me. And all I did was I bounced and I just rolled end over end and I almost skinned myself alive. And I spent eight days in the hospital after this little trial. And every morning for eight days, that old doctor would come in there with a great big pair of tweezers, and he would pull all the dead skin off that had formed in the night so new skin could heal me. And every day, and I'd scream in pain, and every day for eight days he said, he'd say, well, you shouldn't have jumped. <laughs> And every day for eight days, I'd say, well, hell, I know that now. <laughs> but, you know, I knew the law of averages was going to catch up with me, and I was going to succeed in killing myself, and I didn't want to die. I just didn't want to live this sick way I was living. And this is when I made a decision that I would go to the internist, a specialist, and see if there was something the matter with me physically. And this was the beginning of the prescription phase of my alcoholism, and before it was over, I took energizers, stabilizers, tranquilizers, barbiturates, and a lot of narcotics. Matter of fact, I took the whole drug spectrum. It wasn't odd at all for the druggist to call me and say, Mrs. Marcus, there is a new prescription on the market. <laughs> and I thought perhaps it might help you. And I'd say, well, Mr. Blank, you just send it out. But when this doctor was in, and listen, I did not smoke pot, I did not uh, stop cocaine, I did not use heroin for three reasons only. That's the medical profession and pharmaceutical company and the liquor industry. 
With these three organizations going for me, I didn't need anything else to get me through the day. And this doctor was interviewing me, and I told him, I said, now, I drink nearly every day, and nearly every day I get drunk. I might even be an alcoholic. And he smiled at me across his desk, and he said, nonsense. A nice little woman like you couldn't be an alcoholic. I agreed with him 100%. (laughs) But he was alarmed about my suicide attempts, which he attributed to depression. That's a good cop-out for most anything. And uh, i tell you one thing. Every morning when I woke up with a hangover, I was depressed. <laughs> so he started, a, he, wanted, he started a series of weekly series of vitamin and hormone shots, and he put me on the amphetamine, which is the pet pill. And this amphetamine is used for depression, and it is also used in weight reduction. Because what it does, it jazzes up your thyroid and gives you a lot of energy and it depresses the appetite centers in your brain and you don't eat. So you gin around a lot and you don't eat and ergo you lose weight. But if you abuse these amphetamines the way I did, you'll also lose some of your marbles. <laughs> but I know that I came home from that doctor's office. He couldn't find anything wrong with me and when my liver function test came back perfect, he said, see... Your liver's perfect. You couldn't be an alcoholic because all alcoholics have liver damage. Seventeen years later when I came in, I still didn't have liver damage. But uh, I know that I, I, when I got home, I always tell everybody I weighed 90 pounds dripping wet in a great big bottle of reducing medicine. But I still remember, oh, I still remember taking that first pet pill. Oh, my God, I thought I had been reborn. Did any of y'all ever have pet pill? Oh, boy, I tell you, it was glory hallelujah all the way. I did three weeks work in one afternoon. <laughs> and when my husband came in from work that day, the boys met him at the back door and said, Oh, Daddy, guess what? Mother feels good. And once again, I thought I had found the answer. Once again, I thought I had found the answer. But this wonderful medication had a bad drawback to it. I was so exhilarated and happy, I couldn't sleep. <laughs> so after I went two or three nights to sleep, and fitfully, I called the doctor about this. And, you know, bless his heart, he sure did want me to sleep. And he sent me the, my first prescription for the sleeping tablet. So I was getting up in the morning, taking the pet pill, and I was taking the sleeping tablet at night. The icebox was full of beer, and I'm still alcoholic. And I reach in there, and I start drinking, and I start losing control. And I call the doctor about this. And he was of the opinion that the speed run of the amphetamine needed to be slowed down. And there was a brand new drug on the market called a tranquilizer. And he sent me a prescription, and it had the magic words on there, Take as needed. So I was getting up in the morning, and I was taking the pep pill in the morning, the tranquilizer through the day, the sleeping tablet at night. Of course, I was doubling and tripping up on all of this. And uh, incidentally, this uh, pep pill is just wonderful medication. I don't know whether I told you that now. But I do know this one. You can lose weight on it, but you can also lose your marbles if you take too many of them. And uh, let's see, I'm about to lose my play. So anyway, the icebox is still full of beer. 
and I'm still alcoholic, and as an alcoholic, it is as normal for me to drink as it is for me to breathe, and I reach in there and I start drinking, and when I started drinking this time and mixing it with all this medication, it was taking a dreadful toll of everything about me. My naturally curly hair became limp and stringy. I've always been a little bit cross-eyed. Back in those days, I went around with one eye closed a lot. I had a green cast to my complexion with undertones of yellow. I had lost five pounds on my reducing medicine. If this isn't bad enough, skinny, cross-eyed, and green. I was growing fine hair on each side of my face and a very prominent mustache across my upper lip. Now, I don't know how long I had looked this way, but if I had been growing horns in a tail, my, my family would not have said a word. They, they wouldn't want to do anything to upset mother. And one day I had to go, one day I had to go someplace, and this is when I made a, an, an amazing discovery. If you have a beard, you can't powder your face. <laughs> that powder was going everywhere but where I wanted it to do, and I looked through that haze of that powder, and I thought, my God, surely I'm not supposed to be growing a mustache. And I took myself off to the doctor's office just as fast as I could get out there. And back in those days, you didn't have to have an appointment. You just went to see the doctor. And while I was in his office waiting for him to see me, I thought, well, I guess I'm going to have to start shaving every day. <laughs> Horrible thought, by the way. And he came in and turned my face from side to side, and he said, honey, I'm not worried about that on your face. It's caused from the hormone shots. He said, I want to know if you're growing any hair on your chest. <laughs> This is the most insulting thing anybody ever asked me in my whole life. I started unbuttoning my blouse, and I got to this blouse, and the full import of what he asked me hit me, and I was blazing mad. And I looked up at him, so I said, I don't know, you son of a bitch, but I better not be. And you never saw a monkey looking for fleas the way I was trying to find one hair on my chest. But I was spared that indignity. But believe me, this is the same thing as if you men were going to a doctor for treatment over a period of several months and you trusted this doctor, and lo and behold, one day you started experiencing a 28-day female cycle. <laughs> I, guarantee, I guarantee you would be upset. And on the way home from the doctor's office, I swore up and down, I was never, I never was going to take another drink. That was it. That was it. I was just going to quit right there. And within 30 minutes, I was drinking again, and I didn't know what had happened to me. And it was long about this time they were writing a lot of articles in the newspapers and the leading magazines about alcoholism and about Alcoholics Anonymous. And oh, I read all these things avidly. I just ate them up. I just couldn't get enough of them. And I decided I would go to the library and research this alcoholism. In case I ever got it, I'd know what it was. 
and at the library they had two books about alcoholism, and one was a book entitled Drinking is Not the Problem, and the other was the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know which book I read first. <laughs> this man had been living with this woman for years, and she just nagged him, and he drank every day, and just as quick as he got a divorce from her, he quit drinking. He hadn't had a drink in two or three years. And I read those profound words, and I thought, well, of course. <laughs> it's all my husband's fault. I'll just get a divorce from him, and I'll be all right. But right along behind that came another thought, oh, Lord, if I quit Lenore, I'll have to go to work. And I, I, I was totally unemployable at that time. But in reading the big book, they said that they thought alcoholism was a three-way disease, that it was mental and it was physical and it was spiritual. And I thought, well, that's what my problem is. I haven't been to church in years, and I'll just go back and get my spiritual life all straightened out, and I'll be all right. And I went back to my church, and I still got drunk. I tried other denominations. I still got drunk. Those big churches in Houston have special counselors down there for people with trouble, and I'd go down there. And they, they would counsel me, but they didn't know any more about alcoholism than I did, which was absolutely nothing. But here I was, a dyed-in-the-wool Baptist, getting counseling from a Methodist minister. This was almost blasphemy, you know. <laughs> but in all of my drinking, the only semblance of anything that I thought I was all right was when I would leave these ministers and I would start home and I'd think, I'm going to be all right. And just as quick as I passed the liquor store, I was off and drinking again and I didn't know what I was going to do. Now, the only time in all of our drinking that my husband was out of town, it was a cold February and the boys were in the front of the house entertaining themselves and I was in the back of the house getting drunk and passing out and getting drunk. And I came to about 6 o'clock, and my conscience was just killing me. You know, they hadn't had anything to eat. So I went in the kitchen to fix them something good to eat. I took an egg out of the icebox, and I dropped it on the floor. And every time I tell this story, I can still feel that egg between my toes. And I reached in the icebox, and I got another egg, and I dropped it all over the floor. And I thought, Lord, I am too drunk to cook. I'll take the boys to the drive-in. I wasn't too drunk to drive. And on the way back from the drive-in, I missed my own driveway. It got stuck in the ditch in front of my home. And all I couldn't get out. You know, when you get stuck and you keep trying to get out, it just goes in deeper and deeper. I started raving and ranting, and the boys ran next door to one of the neighbors. And I lived on a dead-end street, and there were four other neighbors on this street. And all of our children played together and went to school together. And none of these women drank. And I'll tell you all something, I never did trust somebody that never did take a drink. <laughs> and uh, I could stand these women pretty good when I was sober, but when I was drunk, oh, I just couldn't stand them. And you know whose fault it was. My car was out there in the ditch. It was all their fault. And I got out of my car in a loud screaming voice, and I cursed these women. I called them everything in the books that I could think to call someone. And when I was drunk and in a rage, I had the vocabulary of a mule skinner. And then came the dawn. Ah! Oh, all the doors were open. It had rained in. 
I went to the kitchen to close the back door and I saw the eggs on the floor and I vaguely remembered the eggs. Went to the front door and I saw my car in the ditch and I sure did remember that. I thought, oh my God. And I knew what I had to do. I had to go around the next morning and apologize. Now the next morning these women were ladies. I had to go around and apologize to these ladies. And I told each one of them that I had gotten drunk the night before. I was ashamed of myself, and I asked them to forgive me. Now, this was the first time in a number of years that my drinking had gone outside the confines of my home. In my husband's business, we got invited out a lot, and they always served alcohol. And more often than not, I would start a scene of some sort at some of these functions, and I didn't count, didn't, didn't start it with some little runt he might could have whipped, you know. I'd pick a big bill of six five or six six, and I would start something with him. My husband's five eight, and he would come pull me out and take me home. And about three or four years before, he brought me home, and he says, "Mary, I will never take you out in public again because you're going to get me killed." And you know, I had been sober two or three years before he trusted me enough to take me out in public. But anyway, this was the first time that my drinking had gone outside. Now, incidentally, I had gone to other doctors after that. I just wasn't going to give up. I went to all kinds of doctors. And several of the doctors had suggested that perhaps a psychiatrist might help me. But I wasn't willing to go to a psychiatrist till this little incident. And uh, I know I made an appointment with a psychiatrist on Monday, and I was in his office bright and early Tuesday morning. And I'd laid awake all night, Sunday night, and Monday night, and I was trying to figure up some big lies to tell him because I wanted help. Then I decided, no, I'm just going to tell him what it is, how it is with me. So while he was in, and I told him everything about me. I didn't leave a stone unturned. I told him about my erotic dreams. I told him about my sexual fantasy. I told him everything I could think to tell him about me. And he made a decision to take, send me to Herman Hospital to take a series of insulin shock treatments. He wanted me to take 60, but I, we couldn't afford but 30. But I will say this, before I got to AA, I had over 100 electric shock treatments. And these electric shock treatments are brutal, and I hated them. But if this was the price I had to pay to get well, I was willing to pay any price. And the psychiatrist came in every morning and every evening and talked to me. We visited, and we just got to be real good buddies. And I had been in this hospital about three weeks. When he came in one morning, he says, Mary, I have some real good news for you. You don't have anything to worry about because you are not an alcoholic. I wasn't happy with this diagnosis, but it was all I had. But I do know this. Because of this diagnosis, I drank for 15 more long, sick, bitter, humiliating years, getting sicker every day. And I didn't know what I was going to do. But and, um, after this, I tried other psychiatrists. I tried a chiropractor. I tried a uh, psychologist. I tried a faith healer. I tried... Uh, a hypnotist. I would have tried voodoo, hoodoo, or anything under the sun to have gotten well, and I was just getting sicker and dying all the time. Well, one of the doctors working, one of the psychologists working with my medical doctor, put me on the drug antabuse. And antabuse is medication if it is in your bloodstream, 
and you drink alcohol, it will make you violently ill, and it could cause your death. And when I first started taking that abuse, you had to be sober, 70, free of alcohol, 72 hours, which is three days. We like to have never gotten that first abuse down me. But the last six years of my drinking, I stayed sober on abuse, two days to six weeks, and I'd go back to drinking, and I would drink two days to six weeks, and it was a terrible way to live. But now good things kind of start turning around. I had to go to Wichita Falls, Texas to a wedding in 1962. And at the reception after this wedding, an aunt from another city and I were visiting, and I turned to walk away from Aunt Sydney, and she called out to me. She said, Oh, Mary, by the way, said your cousin Gloria is moving to Houston. Said she is in AA now, and she's just doing beautifully. But when Aunt Sydney called these words out to me, a hush fell over that room. Everything got so still you could have heard a pin drop. And in that moment of hush, something way deep inside of me said, I am going to be saved. That somehow through Gloria and AA, I was going to be made whole again. Now, Gloria was a complete stranger to me. I had never laid eyes on her in my life. But you would think I would come back to Houston... After going up all these blind alleys, get in touch with Gloria, get in AA, and everything would be just fine. But it didn't work out that way. I had some more drinking to do. Finally, I did get in touch with Gloria, and she hadn't talked to me for over three or two minutes till she said, Well, Mary, you are an alcoholic. And I remember how relieved I was because I knew she was right, but I still wasn't ready to stop drinking. And she talked to me every day for 13 months before I went for, I'd even go to my first AA meeting. And she would just scare the liver out of me. <laughs> she would tell me that as an alcoholic, that, that alcoholism was a progressive disease, it was incurable, and it terminates fatally. That's enough to get drunk on right there. <laughs> and she would say, as an alcoholic, you have three choices. You can get locked up in an institution or jail. You can get covered up in the cemetery, or you can get sobered up. And these things just, ah, oh, that was another good drug. But I would protest to Gloria, and I'd say, well, Gloria, I've never been involved in an automobile wreck, and I've never been in an institution, and all those shock treatments didn't count. And she'd say, well, she'd say, well, honey, you just keep, you just keep drinking and these things will happen to you. And I knew she was right. Well, it was in 1963 that our youngest son went away to school. And this was the first time in all of my drinking that I didn't have somebody coming in monitoring me. And this is when I nearly drank myself to death. I drank every day steady for three weeks. And it was during this period that I tried to commit suicide in a blackout. Now, I want you to know this scared the hell out of me. I took the attitude, if I was going to commit suicide, I wanted to know about it. I didn't want to just wake up the next day dead someplace. <laughs> and this is when I got on the telephone and I called Gloria and I said, Gloria, I need help. And she said, yes, honey, I know you do. We have been fooling around about this long enough. And that was the night on September the 23rd, 1963, that Gloria and Lee came out and made a 12-step call on me and my husband. Now, while I was waiting for Gloria and Lee to get out there, I was wishing I had energy to take a bath and comb my hair and clean up. 
but I didn't have that kind of energy. On some of my drunks, I would not bathe, I would not comb hair, I wouldn't brush my teeth. For days on end, I didn't want to lose my good buzz. And I want you to know this just drove my husband crazy. <laughs> He's such a fastidious alcoholic, he even takes showers during blackouts. <laughs> this is revolting to me. But while I was waiting for Gloria and Lee, I was remembering the time that that my hu- I hadn't had a bath in three or four days, and my husband made a fatal mistake. He decided he was going to give me a bath. Oh, boy. Now, when he took me in the bathroom and locked the door, I didn't know he was going to give me a bath, a shower. And when he started undressing me, I sure didn't know he was going to give me a shower. And when he got me completely undressed and sh- Shove me in that shower. You know, this was quite a letdown. <laughs> I came out of that shower and he pushed me back in and finally, just in complete disgust, he got in the shower with me, clothes and all. And he was standing behind me and he's, he's trying to soak me. And he said, I'm going to give you a bath, damn you. And I said, no, you're not, damn you. Anyway, I started kicking, and I kicked out all three sides of that shower. I just demolished that shower completely. And the next day, when he was trying to build it back together, he said, I'll never make that mistake again. (laughs) It was several weeks later, the boys were out on the back porch, and all the kids in the neighborhood had something to do but them. And they were bored, and they were restless, and they were grumpy. One of them sighed and said, Oh, I wish something interesting would happen around here. <laughs> and the other one piped up and said, Well, say, maybe Daddy's trying to give Mama another bath. <laughs> That's the reason I just love to get all foo-fooed up in AA. That's the reason I'm going to look as good as I can and dress up every time I get a chance because I was such a slob on a lot of my drinking. But when I opened the door to Lee and Glory that night, I have never seen a more beautiful sight in my whole life. In the first place, they were clean, <laughs> they were happy, they were joyous, they were free, and they were sober. And whatever they had, I wanted. And while we were visiting... Uh, Lee got my attention, and he said, Mary, if you could have one wish tonight granted you above all others, what would you ask for? And without a moment's hesitation, I said, I want peace of mind. He said, you want serenity. And I said, oh, yes. And you know, in the promises, we are told we will comprehend the word serenity, and we will know peace. And this is one of my treasures in AA. I started AA. And I stayed sober 90 days. My husband came in AA with me because he wanted to get me well where I wouldn't be sick all the time, spending all that money. And then he was going on about his drinking, but he was going to be polite and let me get sober. He also didn't want me drinking up his Sunday morning beer. And uh, so anyway, on December the 23rd, I was going to the Travis Club and get my 90-day chip. And my husband came in from the Christmas party, and he had fallen off the wagon, and he had a fifth of whiskey under each arm. And I don't remember to this day starting to drink, because I started drinking in a blackout. And I woke up Christmas Eve, 
and I was sick, and I was drunk, and I was hungover, and there's whiskey all over the room. And it was the first Christmas my little grandson had come to spend Christmas with grandmother, and grandmother was drunk. But I got through Christmas by the grace of God. And I think it was on Sunday because my children left after that. And the next day I started drinking, and I, I had a six-pack of beer, and I thought I'll start on beer. And I had to drink two beers. And the telephone rang, and it was Lee, and all he said was, I'll be out tonight. And I know I remember thinking, if that man's going to come clear across town to help me stay sober, I'm going to do my part. And I woke my son up, he's home from school, and I said, take my car keys and don't give them to me, and take that, that six-pack of beer, four cups, and do something with the beer so I don't drink it. And Lee came out that night, and I started back in AA. Several months later, I was out in my backyard. Now, we have some trees in our yard that are 80 feet tall. And I looked up in the trees, and there was a brown paper sack way up in the top of that <laughs> that tallest tree. And I looked at that so puzzled, I thought a little squirrel couldn't carry that, that brown sack way up there. And that little freshman had to shinned up that tree. He didn't want his mother drinking it. So I started back in AA, and this time I stayed sober 109 days. And this young boy was my whipping boy. He, in the last five years of my pathological drinking, he got it. So he was dissatisfied. He didn't want to go to college. He didn't want to work. He wanted to join the Army. He wanted to be a paratrooper, a Green Beret or something. Anyway, I, I, they, my husband and this son were just driving me crazy, so I started drinking. This time I drank two days, and I don't ever want to forget that last day of sobering up. It was on April the 21st of 1964, and that was the most God-awful day I have ever experienced in my life. And I've heard it said so many times, and I, I swear, I don't think I have another sobering up left in me. And Gloria would stay, and my husband had to work that day, and, my, and he had to teach school that night. He taught blueprint reading at the apprentice school. So Gloria would stay in touch all day with me. She'd say, honey, don't drink. Honey, hold on. Honey, don't drink. When she got in for work that evening, and I said, Lord, all I have to do to get rid of this nightmare is go get two beers and I'll be all right. But, you know, I knew that day if I started drinking again, I would never sober up again the longest day I lived. So when Gloria came in from work that afternoon, she couldn't find anybody. She wanted me to come to a meeting. I said, Gloria, I'm not able to drive 20 miles through traffic to a meeting. And she couldn't find anybody to come take me to a meeting. And finally she got back on the phone and she says, Now, Mary, don't say a word. Just, just listen to me. She said, I want you to go in your bedroom and I want you to get down on your knees and I want you to ask God to give you the strength to get to an AA meeting tonight. And she added one more important sentence. She said, and he will give you this strength. And I went in my bedroom because I didn't have any place to turn. And this was the night I borrowed glorious faith. And I knelt down on my knees and all I said was, dear God, give me the strength to get to an AA meeting tonight. Now, I didn't know it at the time, but when I rose from my knees, that was the moment that God started healing this shattered woman because I have never had the compulsion to drink since I got my knees. God had taken this compulsion away from me. Gloria couldn't drive, and I went by to pick her up. 
And praying all the way, by the way, I didn't think I could do it. And when we got to the Travis Club that night, I didn't want to walk in. I didn't want to face you people. I had gotten drunk twice. I was ashamed of myself. You know, when anybody drinks in AA, everybody knows it. It's just like the beat of the tom-tom drum out in the jungles. <laughs> and I didn't want to walk in that door. And if Gloria hadn't been by my side, I never would have walked in that door. But she took my hand and she looked at me and she says, Honey, this isn't the end. It is just the beginning. And we walked in the door. And it was truly the beginning. The uh, One of the men came up to me after the meeting. He said, Honey, the only important thing is you have come back. And that is so true. Anybody has a, has a slip of any kind. It's just to get back. And you know... I started getting sober, and I didn't have alcohol to hide behind, and I didn't like what I was seeing about me. And one of the most glaring defects I had was I could not give love to you. I, I was dead inside. I was empty, and I felt so guilty. And I talked to Gloria Lee about my inability to give love. And she would say, Honey, just keep reading the big book, read the grapevine, pray on your knees, and go to meetings. And I came across something in one of the grapevines that a man out in California, he felt just like I did. He was too dead inside to love and run. And he had borrowed a prayer from someone in AA, and I borrowed it from him. And every night when I would go to bed, I would say, Dear God, give me a small, a small love, a small understanding, and a small love of which I might be worthy. And I got to where I would say that prayer at the end of my other prayers every night, and I don't have to tell you that prayer has been answered thousands and thousands of times over. It's been answered just since I've been in this convention this time. And uh, I didn't know who this guy was that was keeping me sober 24 hours at a time. The God of my, that of my childhood and of the Bible was not the one I wanted. I was having a hard time. And I lost those face up mouths. One reason I was having a hard time is I will never believe that I was created from some man's cotton-picking rib. <laughs> and Gloria said, well, just keep, just keep reading, you know, and pray on your knees and talk to people. Well, I wouldn't do that, but I did read. And at the bottom of a page, I read a very important sentence, and it turned my whole life around in regard to the spiritual part. It was by an old 17th century philosopher named Pascal. And all it said at the bottom of this page was, Fret not thyself. If you had not found me, you would not seek me. And I read that and something clicked inside of me. And I thought, my word, if this old fellow's right, what about that? And I read it the second time. Fret not thyself. If you had not found me, you would not seek me. And, you know, I closed up that book, and I thought, you know, I have either found God or God has found me. It doesn't matter which. And this was the beginning of a slow, slow spiritual life. And, I, and it's still slow, but it's still growing, and I'm satisfied with it. And I didn't know how to live one day at a time. This concept was way over my head. I was going to be happy when school started. I was going to be happy when the car was paid for. I was going to be happy in the future. And I could not understand how you could be happy, that you know, how you could live today. And Carl Sandburg, I read something he wrote. He said, life is like an onion. You peel it back one layer at a time, and sometimes you weep. 
And this was something I could understand. And this is how I slowly started learning to live one day at a time by peeling back that onion. Now, a hundred years before coming into AA, I had made the mistake of my life. I had married a mother's only son. <laughs> you guys check out your, your mother-in-law, future mother-in-law, before you make this mistake. Oh, she was neurotic, she was possessive, and she hated me with a passion. She was a pit bull, bulldog. Oh, she was a barracuda. She was everything I could think of. And I could not do anything to please this old woman. Oh, so here I was getting sober and feeling pretty good. And I'd wake up one morning, the birds were singing, the sun was shining, and I was so happy and great to be alive and be sober. And I'd think of something that old woman had said to me ten years previously. Just blow my whole day. <laughs> And I talked to Glory about this. I'd complain is what I did. I didn't talk. I just belly ached and complained. And finally she had had enough of it. She says, Mary, if you don't quit hating this old woman, you are going to get drunk. And this was the only time, first and only time she ever threatened me with drinking. And it scared me. And I said, now just how am I going to do this? And she said, well, I'm going to tell you, but you ain't going to like it. <laughs> I said, well, tell me. She said, well, you're going to pray for this old woman. And I immediately said, the hell I will. <laughs> but she added one more important sentence. She said, you're not going to pray for this old woman for her sake. You're going to pray for this old woman for your sake. And when she gave it to me, she put it to me like that, I thought, Lord, I don't want to drink. And I'd been obeying it. Whatever they told me to do, I was obeying so I went in my bedroom and I stood in the door, and this is one of the hardest things I have had to do in my AA life. And I have a special place by my bed where I say my prayers, and to me it is sacred. And when I got ready to pray for this mean old woman, I got clear around the foot of the bed, the corner, the foot, the other corner, way up in the back corner, just as far as I could get. I didn't want to contaminate my good praying place. <laughs> And I got down on my knees and I said, now, dear God, you know I don't mean a word I say. <laughs> but you bless Ethel. <laughs> and I got to where at the end of my prayer every, every night I'd say, bless Ethel, bless Ethel, you know. Just got to be happy, just like I breathe or something. But one morning, eight or nine, ten months later, I don't know, I woke up and I knew something was different. And I finally figured it out that this was the moment that God had taken away this anger and resentment that I had for this old woman, and I no longer hated her. And Lord, it was such a fast relief to know this. Now, she never changed one damn bit. <laughs> but she didn't have to change. I am the one that had to change. Now, 28 days after I took my last drink, my husband came into AA for his sake, and he had been sober 27 years last May. And um, people would come up to me and they say, Well, Mary, it must just be wonderful. You and the Nar, both in AA, you can just have your own AA meeting. <laughs> I 
I want you to know that we can't even agree on the preamble. <laughs> but that's all right. He's sober his way and I'm sober mine, so that's all right. I had been sober a little while and a friend from Wichita Falls, Texas called me and she wanted to come down to Houston and buy crystal in China. And I just thought this is the silliest thing I ever heard of. These things meant absolutely nothing to, to me, and they don't mean anything to me now. I just didn't drink out of, a, out of a fruit jar or a crystal glass. It just doesn't matter. And I went in and I told my husband, I said, isn't this ridiculous driving 500 miles to buy crystal in China? And I, I, this my, I hate to shop. My husband doesn't know what little treasure he has in me. <laughs> and I... I'm glad you're on the front row. I need you. <laughs> so when Virginia came down, I took her to the China and Crystal Department of a brand new department store, and they had some beautiful things in there, according to her. And I said, now, Virginia, you shop all you want to, and I'm going in the furniture department. I'm going to sit down in a chair, and I, I'm going to watch the people pass. But I wasn't able to stay up and shop. I just didn't have that kind of energy. It took me over two years to get over just a little bit of the damage I had done to myself. And as I turned to walk away from Virginia, I saw a picture way at the back of the room, and it caught my eye, and it was the picture of roses, and it was the prettiest thing I had ever seen. And I was drawn to this picture just like a magnet. And the closer I got to it, the pretty, more beautiful it became. And I got up there, and I looked at it, and oh, I was in awe of the beauty of this picture. And I looked at the price tag, and it was $139. And Lord, we couldn't afford $139 back in those days. But you know, it wasn't important that I couldn't afford to buy this picture. The important thing to me was I could want something again. And so for the next two or three months or so, you know, you have bad times in AA, and every time I start having a bad, get in a bad mental mood, I would think of my picture of roses, and I would, my heart would start smiling, I would get over it. But one day, one day I had to go in a department store to buy something, and there was a little mannequin there in the entrance to it, and it had a black and white checked raincoat on it. And I looked at that raincoat, and I wanted that raincoat. This was the second thing I had seen I wanted, and the price tag on it was nine ninety five, and I could afford nine ninety five. Now this is absolutely beautiful. I had found something that I wanted, and I could afford to buy, but it was way too big for me. But it had a lining in it. But anyway, I bought it because it was too big. And I came home, and I started hemming it up, you know, at the bottom and in the sleeves. And soon as I finished hemming that raincoat up, I looked outside and I wanted it to start raining right then. <laughs> I didn't think it was ever going to rain. In old rainy Houston, it was over three weeks, and oh, you never saw no drought farmer scan the skies the way I was looking for rain. One afternoon, old, you know that old saying, into each life a little rain must fall? One afternoon I heard the pitter-patter of rain. Oh, I was the happiest thing. I thought, oh boy, I'm going to Travis tonight and I'm going to wear my new raincoat. And my garage is attached to my house, so I put on that new raincoat and I got in my car and I drove to Travis and I was singing every step of the way. I was this, this time I wanted to go to AA. Here before I had been going for therapy. 
And when I got down to Travis, I opened the door, and Lord, I saw how hard it was raining. It was just a deluge of rain coming down. I got back in my car real fast and slammed the door, and I started laughing all by myself in that car. I had been waiting three weeks to buy, wear my new raincoat, and I didn't want to get it wet. <laughs> I tell you, I have been given such a good life in this program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I am so grateful for my sobriety. I'm grateful to be one of you here tonight. I think we're all just wonderful, by the way. And one of my greatest treasures in AA is sponsoring women. And I sponsor a lot of young women, and I just love every minute of it. And they keep me young, and I get, you know, we, and we have a good time, and we meet for lunch, and we go to meetings. And I just wouldn't think, take any, I wouldn't take anything for the privilege of sponsoring women in AA. And, uh, I've just done all kind of service work in AA that I could do. I've, I've held all, every office that could be held. But, um, that's not important now, except everything I did was to keep me sober first. But I want to tell you that I do have a lot. Before this, I want to say that both of my sons, both of us being alcoholic, my two sons had an 80% chance, to beat both of them, of being alcoholic. And you know, both of them missed it. One of them has a has an alcoholic personality, I think, but he, but neither one of them drink, which is a miracle in itself. Anyway, I have a lot of nicknames in AA. I'm called Fast Draw. I'm called I'm called Hip Shot. I'm called Pistol Pete. I'm called Shotgun. I'm called Shotgun Mary. But I'm going to close tonight by telling you that because of the grace of God in Alcoholics Anonymous, this pistol-packing mama has laid her pistols down.